united in the Lord. They will need no light of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would speak now with power through your word. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are looking at what John saw, his dazzling and radiant vision uh, here in Revelation 21 and 22. And I think it might help us get our bearings a bit with this vision if we have some more context for it. The book of Revelation is many things. The book of Revelation is many things all at once. We know it is prophecy. And it especially told those early Christians about the fall of the temple in Jerusalem and the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. But the book of Revelation is also liturgy. It is a worship service. Uh, John tells us in chapter 1, this whole vision took place on the Lord's Day. That's the day of worship. It starts in chapter 1 with a vision of the risen Christ, which really serves as a call to worship. And then in chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches are called to confess their sins. I uh, would hope that this order actually sounds pretty familiar to you. Then in chapter 4, there is what we might call the Sursum Corda, where we lift our hearts up to the Lord. We, lit, we enter into heaven together, and this is what happens with John. And uh, Revelation chapter 4 is a representative of the church. John is caught up into heaven. He's taken up into heaven, into the heavenly sanctuary, and he joins in the liturgy of heaven. And there is singing, holy, 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 prayer that goes up like incense, preaching that sounds forth like trumpets, and of course a feast of bread and wine. And then at the conclusion of the book, there is a benediction, and the church descends down from heaven to earth. That's the end of the worship service. But you know what else the book of Revelation is? It is a wedding. We meet the bridegroom first in chapter 1. He steps out first at the very beginning of the book. And then most of the rest of the book is the bride being prepared for her husband. And when we come to chapters 21 and 22, we find this is the moment we've all been waiting for. This is the unveiling of the bride. And that's what John sees here. Chapter 21, verse 2, a bride prepared for her husband. Now we could say walking down the aisle to meet him. And in the end, of course, he's going to make her to be without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. She will fulfill this beautiful vision that's set for us in these chapters. And she will celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb for all eternity in union with her husband. That's really what Revelation is about. But of course, we find here in chapters 21 and 22, she isn't just a bride. She is also the new Jerusalem. She is the temple. She is the most holy place. She is the heavenly mountain. She is the glorified Garden of Eden. She's all that and more. All these images are combined here. They all converge together here. And of course, what John sees in this vision taken all together is actually the church. The church is the bride, the most holy place, the temple, the city, and so on. 
And so what we have in these two chapters at the end of Revelation is the church in symbols. It's what you might call a visionary ecclesiology. John is describing for us the church in these symbols. Now, we started looking at this last week, looking at some of these symbols here. We saw that the church is a liturgical community. The church is a holy community, a priesthood. We've got God's name written on our forehead, just like the priests of the Old Covenant. We're a worshiping community. The church is God's most holy place. We saw that last week. Today, we're going to see the church is also a missional community, a community with a mission. A mission to the world. We're going to see the church exists for the life of the world. She has a mission of love to the nations. She has a mission of truth to the nations. There was an Anglican priest uh, who once said, The church is the only institution in the world that exists for the sake of her non-members. You think about that. Most every institution that exists exists for the sake of those that compose its membership. Not so with the church. The church exists for the sake of her non-members. The church is not a self-serving entity. The church serves those on the outside. And in doing so, she brings many on the outside into her fellowship. And we're going to see this in this vision. Here's how we can begin to see it. John sees the church as a massive city that is also a temple. The city doesn't have a temple because it is a temple. And it doesn't have sun or moon to light it because the Lord God is the light of the city. The vision in these chapters, for the most part, describes the church in history as she exists right now. Or at least as she should exist right now. We could say this vision John has, this is a vision of the new covenant church, the the, the new covenant community. This is a vision of what the church is, or we could say what the church should aspire to be. It's a vision, really, then, that can serve as a measuring rod by which we can gauge our faithfulness. Are we being the church that God wants us to be? Well, let's see how we compare to John's vision. One way we know that this is not, strictly speaking, the final state, the resurrection state, is that we see here in this vision, the church is still doing evangelism. Uh, You'll see this if you especially look at verses 12 to 21 uh, of chapter 21. This new Jerusalem temple bride, John sees, has both gates and walls. Now think about gates and walls, what they might symbolize. What do these gates and walls mean? Well, what do gates and walls do? Gates allow things in. Walls keep things out. If the church symbolically has gates and walls, what does that mean? Well, gates point us to the mission of the church, the the church's evangelistic task, her mission to the nations, to invite the nations in. There are 12 gates, three on each side, gates facing in every direction of the compass really interesting in Luke chapter 13 when Jesus is talking about his kingdom and how things will be in the kingdom he says many will come from east and west from north and south and sit down in the kingdom of God people are going to come from all four directions 
And if people are going to come into the church from all four directions, isn't it fitting that the church has open gates facing in all four directions? That's what John shows us, the global missionary task of the church. Verse 12 tells us that uh, these gates have angels. The word angels there means messenger. And uh, at least at this point in Revelation, uh, I think these angels are pastors. And so these are pastors, you might say, exercising the keys of the kingdom, loosening people in their sins when they repent that they might come in, and binding people in their sins if they refuse to repent. Pastors have this gatekeeping function in the church. We admit people to membership in the church. That's part of the the task of the pastor. And you see that here. The guardian pastors of the church at the gates. So you have these gates that point us to the evangelistic missionary task of the church. But there are also walls. Why are there walls? What do walls do? Well, there are walls to keep things out. What does the world need to keep out? What does the church need to keep out? In a word, what the church needs to keep out is the world. We might say worldliness is maybe the the better way to describe it. Walls are like a defense system for a city. All ancient cities had walls to keep invaders out. You can think of walls like an immune system for the city, for the temple. The church has walls to protect herself against infection. The church has walls to protect herself against invasion. And John spells this out for us. We don't have to guess how this works. If you go to chapter 2, chapter 22, verses 14 and 15, John describes for us who is in and who is out. That is, who may come through the gates and who will be kept out by the walls. And this is how he describes it. Blessed are those who do his commandments. They have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. What happens when they come into the city? They find the tree of life, that tree of life that has healing for the nations. All those who enter in through these gates may eat of the tree of life. Who enters in through the gates? It's those who repent of their sins. It's those who do the commandments. It's those who are drawn to the light of Christ shining in the city. But then verse 16 goes on to say, on the outside, that is on the outside of the city are dogs, sorcerers, fornicators, murderers, idolaters, whoever practices a lie. Who is outside? Those who only live for themselves. Those who will not repent of their sins are kept out by the walls. Chapter 21, verse 27 says, There shall by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. That's what God says must be kept out. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem we face when we think about how do we turn this vision into a reality? How do we turn this vision into the life of the local church? How do we translate it into practice? Here's the problem. Every church, every local congregation is called to be a representation of this model seen in John's vision. Every local church is is called to embody what John sees here, which means every church must have both gates and walls. But not every church gets the wall-gate relationship right. Some churches are all wall, or almost all wall. It's almost impossible for anyone to get in. It's like harder to get into the church than it is to get through security at the airport. Uh, everything's so tight. 
They have no love for those on the outside, no love for the lost, no heart for the lost. Uh, the church culture is unwelcoming. It's, it's, it's not friendly. It's not hospitable. They don't know how to show grace. Uh, they don't know how to forgive. They're so rigid in how they do things. New people can't really find a, a, a way to fit into the community. They're judgmental, often about things that don't much matter. We could say they're legalistic. They are all wall. And they might say, oh, well, we're doing this to keep sin out. But the reality is they're keeping a lot of people out that God wants in. And that's not fulfilling John's vision. They're not really participating in the mission Christ calls us to. They're not being true to the vision here. Their gates aren't always open. On the other hand, there are churches that are all gate and no wall. These are churches with no defense mechanism, no immune system. These are churches that do not defend themselves against the world in any kind of way. They don't defend themselves against the attacks of Satan in any kind of way. They don't have any boundary that separates the church from the world. And so whatever fashions or fads or trends come along in the culture, they jump right on board. It doesn't matter whether or not it's consistent with Scripture, whether or not it's faithful to God's Word. They go with the flow. These are churches that aren't grounded in Scripture in any kind of way. They go wherever the winds of the world take them. They have no anchor. They have no grounding. As soon as it looks like there might be some kind of cost, some kind of price to pay, some kind of sacrifice that has to be made to be faithful to God's Word, they compromise to take the heat off. They're cowardly. Probably familiar with churches like this. They are all gates, no wall. And they might say, oh, we're doing this in the name of mission. We want to reach people on the outside. We want to show them how much we love them. But there's no mission at all if there's no truth. If there's no truth being proclaimed, no truth being defended, that's not the mission. The key then is for the church to have both gates and walls in the right places, and in the right proportions. If we are going to build our church according to the blueprint that John gives us here, if we're going to build our church according to this heavenly design that John gives to us, it's got to have both gates and walls. Gates that are never shut and walls that cannot be penetrated. There must be gates of grace. Gates where sinners can enter in and find forgiveness and find new life, where sinners can come in and find hope and healing where there's really good news, where there really is a a, a flowing river, a a river of life to quench the soul's deepest thirsts. But there also must be walls, thick, solid walls, walls of truth, walls that cannot be penetrated by Satan's lies, walls that keep idols out, walls of righteousness that defend the holiness and integrity of the church. Every church needs the right mix of walls and gates. It's what we're called to here. If you only have walls, you're legalistic and unwelcoming. If you only have gates, you're antinomian and worldly. And worldliness, that's a term that uh, I think is often confusing to people. Worldliness is just when sin is made normal. When sin is normalized, when sin is just the thing to do, that's, that's worldliness. So gates and walls, a faithful church must have both. 
What this means, and this is the challenge of the vision to our church, to to every local church. What this means is a faithful church will radically love sinners and serve them. That when somebody who is not a Christian comes in or comes into contact with us, they will experience love like they've never seen it before. But it also means we must be radically different from the world. The faithful church is radically different from the world because she is committed to holiness. She is committed to righteousness. She is committed to truth. And so that outsider who comes in or comes into contact with us will experience a love like they've never seen. But they're also going to encounter truth like they've never heard it. Now, if you think about this, what I've just described, this is exactly how Jesus himself lived. In fact, if you look at the Gospels, this is exactly the kind of ministry Jesus carried out. And the church should live in just the same way. Our mission is patterned after Jesus. How did Jesus carry out his mission? This is how we are to carry out our mission as well. Think about the the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' ministry had gates. And those gates were wide open. They were open all the time. Jesus said, whosoever will may come. Jesus invited anyone and everyone to come be his follower. It did not matter what you've done, how great the sin in your past is. It does not matter where you've come from or who you are. It doesn't matter how badly you've messed up, how broken you think you are as a person. All are welcome. Jesus continually rolled out the red carpet for sinners and invited them in. Everywhere Jesus went, he threw a party. He was always the life of the party. In fact, what got him in so much trouble is he was eating and drinking with the worst and most notorious sinners around. Jesus' ministry had gates that were always open. People were loved by Jesus in a way they had never been loved before. But you know what? Jesus' ministry also had walls because Jesus made demands on people. Jesus insisted on repentance. Sometimes Jesus even turned people away. Sometimes it seems like he was driving them away. There was no room for hypocrisy or idolatry or self-righteousness. Jesus' ministry had walls. When people encountered Jesus, they heard truth. They heard truth that often had very hard edges, very sharp edges. And Jesus didn't back down from that. He never diluted what he had to say to make the message more palatable. He always said exactly what needed to be said, no matter how uncomfortable it made people, no matter how unpopular it was. Jesus' ministry had gates, but it also had walls. And those are the very things that should characterize the church as well. Now, I want to go one step beyond this because there's something else John shows us here that's really important. That's really the challenging part. This part is going to seem almost beyond what we can comprehend, but it's really important to take in as well. Because John shows us something else really interesting about the gates. What comes into the gates? Look at verse 24. We see the kings of the earth coming into the city. And what do the kings bring with them? They bring their honor and glory into the city as well. Now what's interesting is this is something that the Old Testament prophets promised again and again. That this would happen. That the kings of the nations would stream into the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of Messiah is finally established, the kings of the nations will flow in. And they're going to bring all of their glory and all of their honor with them. 
And so Isaiah chapter 60, the prophet says of Messiah's future kingdom, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Kings will bring their treasures to Zion. That's promised in Isaiah. Psalm 68 says, Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Psalm 72, The kings of Tarshish and distant islands will bring presents. All kings will bow before him and all nations will serve him. Yes, the nations will stream into Zion. And what is this Zion the psalmist is talking about? It's God's new temple. It's the church. It's the new covenant church. It's not just people who come in to God's kingdom. You have peoples here, the peoples of the world, represented by their kings, bringing their glory and honor in, but they bring their cultural treasures with them. And this is so important to see because we live in a day when the church has truncated its own gospel where the gospel in its fullness is not really proclaimed, where a big chunk of the gospel has been cut out from the message, and we've got to recover this. I'll put it to you this way. The Christian hope includes more than the salvation of individuals. It includes the salvation of individuals, but more. The Christian hope has always also included nations, empires, and civilizations as well. It is a global hope. You might say it's a political hope, but it is a global hope, a hope that, yes, ultimately is fulfilled beyond history in the resurrection, but it's a hope that is also fulfilled within history as well. We've got an eternal hope, but we've got a hope for history as well, for where God's going to take history. And so the mission of the church is this. We aim not only to convert individuals, but to disciple nations, to bring the whole of life and every aspect of culture into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. To bring all of culture, all of life, into submission to Christ's Lordship. To lay all of life at the feet of King Jesus. To bring the honor and glory of the nations to him. So the treasures of every culture can be incorporated into his kingdom. And so the nations can fulfill his purposes. The treasures of the nations will glorify Christ's bride. Again, the church aims not just at the eternal salvation of individuals, but the transformation of cultures in history as well. It's what Jesus in the Great Commission called the discipling of the nations. This is the Great Commission. Not just converting individuals, not just saving an individual here or there, but that whole nations might be discipled. In other words, the church aims at nothing less than this, to turn the world into what the world really ought to be, to make this world into the kingdom of Christ. Not in some kind of utopian way. We know there's always going to be sin around until Jesus returns. But to... Disciple the nations to make the nations of the world Christ's disciples. Last week we saw how this vision points us to the church as a worshiping community. And that's true. And we saw that the church as a worshiping community is central to all of life and all of culture. The church as a worshiping community is central. But the church as a worshiping community is not the only thing that matters. Think about human life and culture as a cell. Okay, think back to a biology class where you had to learn about the cell. 
Okay, the cell's got a nucleus and it's got another, a lot of other little organs inside the cell. But that nucleus is right at the center. The church's liturgy is the nucleus of the cell, and it directs the rest of the cell. But the nucleus is not the only thing that matters. The rest of the cell matters too. The rest of human life and culture matter to God and ought to matter to us as well. The gospel that is proclaimed in this gathering... When we come together as the church, the gospel that is proclaimed in this gathering every week is like leaven. And when that gospel is proclaimed, the whole batch of dough that is human life is being leavened with the gospel of the kingdom. So that every part of life and so that every nation will ultimately be discipled. You know what it means to disciple the nations? It means to make every nation the best version of itself. It doesn't mean all the nations are going to look just alike. A Christian America will look quite different from a Christian China. But it means every nation will realize its full purpose when it becomes a discipled nation. And when it brings its honor and glory into the new Jerusalem. A discipled America is a better America than an undiscipled America. We're seeing what happens in our nation right now when the church hasn't done a very good job discipling the nation. When the salt has lost its saltiness, what happens? Well, we're starting to get a taste of that right now in our culture. A discipled China is a better China than an undiscipled China. We can only imagine the kinds of glories that will come out of all the nations of the world when those nations are discipled. So important to see this, the fullness of the gospel. In the New Testament, it's not just the gospel that is preached. It is always the gospel of the kingdom. And if you chop that kingdom part off, you lose a big part of what the gospel is really about. It's not just about changing our lives as individuals. It's about the transformation of the whole world. And Revelation promises us this reality. Revelation promises the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The treasures of the nations are to be brought to him, to be brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. The kings of the earth will honor him. All of life is to be dedicated to his service and reformed according to his word. So politics and economics, technology, medicine, science, art, literature, all of it, every aspect of human life consecrated to service in his kingdom. Every human endeavor made holy. When the prophet Zechariah saw into the future what the kingdom of Christ would be like, he said, holiness is going to be written even on the horse's bells. The holiness of Christ is going to spread out into every nook and cranny of human life because all of it belongs to Jesus. He is king over all of it. He claims it all for himself. There is not one square inch of reality he does not claim for himself. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And that means every other government in the world must be limited because his government is unlimited. The church exists for the sake of the world. The church exists in the world for the sake of the world. The church exists for the life of the world, to transform and heal the world, to shine the light of Christ's love and truth into the world, to bring those fruits from the tree of life to the nations for their healing. The church exists in the world to make the world what it should be, the kingdom of Christ. For then and only then will peace and righteousness reign. You might look at the headlines and the news. You might look at what's going on in the culture all around us and say, well, this can't ever happen. But God's word says it will. 
Christ will do these things. He has promised to do these things. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him to do these things. He is seated at the Father's right hand in heaven, ruling over everything, and history is unfolding exactly according to his plan. But this is important to see, too. Do you know how he will do these things? He will do it through us, through his church, through his new Jerusalem, through his bride. His bride is his queen. Think about this. If Christ is king of kings, then the church is queen of queens. And it means we're co-rulers with Christ and under Christ. And it means he extends his rule through us as we fulfill our mission, our mission of truth and love. He extends his kingdom through us as we love and serve others, as we teach and defend his truth, as we apply his word to all of life. We fulfill our mission by being true to John's vision. When we are a church with welcoming gates of grace and solid walls of truth, that's the kind of church John in this vision calls us to be. Welcoming gates of grace. Whosoever will may come. A place where sinners find love and grace and forgiveness. And thick, solid walls of truth that cannot be penetrated or infiltrated by the errors of the enemy. A church, John shows us, that radiates with the light of Christ's love and Christ's life. So the nations are drawn to that radiance. They see the beauty of what Christ is doing and they're drawn to it. This radiance, this splendor. And when they come in, they bring their treasures with them into his kingdom. May Trinity Presbyterian Church be ever more and more the embodiment of what John saw. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings. Amen.